hate the rich Neolibs are a bitch Medicare for all Bros can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys, the socialist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. <laughs> Hi, Kate. Hi, Julia. Wow. We're here again. Sounding like NPR ladies. And boy, do we have an exciting drive to tell you about. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> what a week. Uh, what a week of being uh, a woman that's extremely online. Wow. Again, you know, it never stops. <laughs> it's a wild ride and that's why we do it. Oh boy. Um, should we just, what, what's going on with you, Kate? What's, what's, what's the scuttlebutt? Okay. So, um, this week, uh, there were a few really fun, uh, controversies on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. my favorite was that Lil Nas X refused to make a remix of Old Town Road <laughs> with Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> Good on Lil Nas X. <laughs> and then Pete Buttigieg like canceled his event because of it, because Lil Nas reviews, which was, I mean, the Lil Nas is so powerful. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know that, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a hard diss because you know that there's nothing that Lil Nas X loves to do more than make remixes of old town road. <laughs> so, you know, that him taking a principled stance in this instance, like it's a meaningful thing. Also, he, he truly has one of the best Twitters in, in the game. Yeah. You gotta follow him. Yeah, it's so really funny. awesome. <laughs> oh my God. Pete Buttigieg is such a nerd. <sighs> Gosh, he is our our Mitt Romney who just will not go away, and I I need him too. He's I don't know. Take your fucking McKinsey contract and leave, please. Yeah, my parents I think are supporting Pete Buttigieg, which they think is like, uh, yeah, they think it's a good idea, and that I would be very happy about them uh, doing that because. Pete is gay and I'm also queer and so they're like here we are but uh yeah I mean you know things have evolved and uh gay people have made a lot (laughs) things have evolved and LGBT people have made a lot of progress over the past few decades and uh now one who is a truly horrible person is running for the highest office in the land. Yeah. That's what I, I think about that in terms of the, fe- the, the women's movement as well. It's like, we've made such advances, uh, in the women's movement that now we have a lot of women in power who are objectively bad. <laughs> you know, who's a woman that's uh, seeking power that I don't think is as bad as people think. He, Tell us. Yeah. He, here's a hill that I will die on and I'm going to, uh, I think the Marianne, okay, Marianne's a little silly, all right, but uh, my most unpopular opinion at the moment is I, th- I think Marianne is the third best person running. I think, I think she's a, I think she's way less good than Bernie or Warren. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, you know, Bernie won for me, Warren two, uh, Marianne, you know, 94, 95, all the way down. Yeah. But, you know, I think when you compare her to people like pete buddha judge like yeah she does have crystals uh <laughs> but are her crystals really more of a problem than joe biden's support for segregation i don't think so is are her uh spells really more problematic than kamala harris's support for the death penalty I, you know i guess i'll take the crystals i mean of course i will but you know i have a special treat for our listeners this week and um I can't believe this. Listeners, what a treat. Yeah. So strap in. (laughs) All right. So um, I was on the train. I'll give you a little background to this. I was on the train last night with my friend, Kath Barbadoro, and uh, we were talking about why Marianne is running for president. This came up because Full Frontal with Samantha Bee released a digital video uh, asking Marianne comedically to drop out. And we were talking about why Marianne is running. And uh, Kath mentioned that maybe it was to sell books. And uh, I said that it was not. And that is because I know the real reason Marianne is running. And that is because I have read her book, A Woman's Worth. And I'm going to read a passage from it now that explains why Marianne is running in her own words. 
electing women to positions of political power does not itself guarantee the expression of a feminine voice in the external world. Once in power, women can be tempted to conspire with the paternalistic system that they feel has so magnanimously allowed them a place at the table. Very Hillary Clinton, by the way. Yeah. They feel compelled to be strong men among strong men. Only when women go into the world to express an authentic balance of intelligence with compassion, representing not only women, but the effort within all human beings to retrieve our lost hearts, will there be a genuine liberation of the imprisoned goddess. Oh my, yes, queen. Yes. So, I mean, look, you know, Pete wow. Buttigieg is running because it's probably his next best career move uh since he can't get elected to higher office in indiana you know um we have uh he has so little support yeah. among people of color that he will never do well in all of all places indiana yeah um <laughs> You know, we have uh, a bunch of people who are running because, you know, like Beto, maybe he's running because, you know, he's he was just a uh, born to run, as he said. Mm -hmm. It's just like, well, you know, I'm a cute white guy from who a rich family who skateboards. Uh, the next thing for me to do is run for president. But or Marianne go into the X Games. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But Marianne is running for the genuine liberation of the imprisoned goddess. And, and you know, frankly, we must stand. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think when it comes to uh, priorities, I support. Um, it's just it, that it, liberating the imprisoned goddess is is right under <laughs> Medicare for all. Um, a couple more couple more uh, hot passages from Marianne's book, literally. Um, this, you know, may or may not be related to politics. I have heard married couples who describe their conjugal relationships as very, very happy. I feel like I can hear the like Marin voice with mm. this, like the sexy Marin voice uh, as very, very happy and monogamous as well as in open marriages. I have heard married couples who describe their conjugal relationships as boring and unhappy in monogamous as well as open marriages. Sex is a sacrament, not a prison. While monogamy can be beautiful, even a sacred bond, it might not be the agreement that best suits everyone. Our thinking that monogamy is inherently a nobler arrangement than any other has created a nation of hypocrites, which is what we've become. So Marianne is running oh on the gosh. feminist orgy ticket. <laughs> and I mean, I, I can't really not stand that. <laughs> Crystals and fucking. I mean, those are I two know. of the main things I yeah, like. She's going to uh, put a like a spell of love and light on the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia go yeah. off. <laughs> um, so as a lot of people know, the ultimate reply guy, uh, who will not leave us is our president, Donald J. Trump. And he was tweeting a bunch of racist stuff about Elijah Cummings, the representative from Maryland. And, uh, I'll just read, I'll read what he wrote. Uh, first of all, <laughs> rep Elijah Cummings, and he says rep, comma, not period. Incredible. Rep Elijah Cummings has been a brutal bully, shouting and screaming at the great men and women of Border Patrol about conditions at the southern border, which actually his Baltimore district is far worse and more dangerous. His district is considered the worst in the USA as proven last week during a congressional tour. Uh, the border is clean, efficient and well-run, just very crowded. Coming district is uh, an incredible typo. Coming district is. Uh, that's like, no, that's like where Marianne wants to be the leader. A coming district right there. <laughs> is Marianne's wheelhouse. Yeah. Coming district is a disgusting rat and rodent infested mess. If he spent more time in Baltimore, maybe he could help clean up this very dangerous and filthy place. Obviously there's a lot to unpack there. What a fucking trash fire. Yeah. So Donald Trump seems <laughs> racist. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and say he is. Yeah. Uh, I thought about reply guying uh these people and then i decided you know i think i will send them a private message instead outlining my concerns and uh you know i did it was like i think really empathetic yeah i was empathetic and like kind of tried to have a discussion and it, it worked and it moved the needle but then i was like in 
a lot of discussions with people uh, about things that I didn't really feel like talking about, like explaining, um, you know, like why, I don't know. I don't want to make it, I don't want to make it sound like I don't like having conversations with people who are maybe more in the center because it's like ultimately the reason that, I am here right now is because a lot of people had very patient conversations with me. Yeah. And, um, and you know what? People did not have patient conversations with me. Really what happened is uh, I had a lot of conversations with people that were having sex with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had to be more patient with me so that they would keep getting laid and that is how i became a socialist um i was not having sex with any of these people i was just trying to um you know engage in the discourse or whatever um that's what i call sex engaging in the discourse yeah uh you know i before we jump into our next segment here um i feel like there is one woman who has some words that can guide us through our online interactions and that person is Yes, it's still Marianne. Um, all right. Our cultural touchstone. Yeah. We have a really great episode for you today. We are speaking with Natalie Schur about why we need Medicare for all. And it's definitely the most cogent, concise. Um, yeah, it's the most cogent and concise explanation that I've heard so she's, far. It she's was so a, fucking smart. It was a really awesome conversation. Yeah. Um, We're big fans. All right. So he, here's a little more Marianne. And um, this is on the subject of art and music. Uh <laughs> When I was in my early 20s, I went with a date to a nightclub in New York. Rat infested New York. Uh, appearing there were two talented young musicians, Daryl Hall and John Oates. <laughs> <laughs> Although we would later know them as Hall and Oates, at that time they were known, but not that well known. And their music had the fabulous impact of fresh beginnings and new sounds. Oh my God. Something <laughs> happened to me that night. I had been to many concerts before, but I had never experienced, as I did then, the transcendent way a musician can bring an entire room into a single heartbeat. I remember thinking, they're priests. That's what they really are. They're priests. They weren't taking me on a magic carpet ride to music. Music was the magic carpet on which they were taking me somewhere else. That somewhere else, the land and sky inside ourselves. It's the purpose of our lives to find that place and stay in it. Oh my God. Truer words never spoken, right? (laughs) Wow. Imagine having like a sexual, spiritual experience at a Hollow Notes concert. (laughs) I'm ready. You know, it's like. I love Hollow Notes. Not only am I ready for a woman president, I am ready for a horny woman president. And. Marianne's lit. Yeah, we know who's playing at the inauguration. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's jump into our conversation with Natalie Sher. This week, we are joined by writer and researcher Natalie Sher, who has written on Medicare for All for the Nation, Jacobin, and American Prospect. Welcome, Natalie. Hey there. Thank you so much for having me. So one thing that is very much going on in the debate right now around Medicare for All is why we need Medicare for All versus a public option. That's probably the biggest question on people's minds. And I was wondering if you could speak to that for a moment. Yeah. So I think that there are a few reasons uh, that Medicare for All is better than a public option, Uh, one of which is that uh, public option is a public uh, insurance buy-in plan. It's structured in a few different ways. So some are better than others, but it basically adds one more insurance option among several others, which doesn't really do anything to ameliorate problems that are specifically associated with there being a tapestry of plans. Uh, so, you know, the fact that there are so many different plans, so many different providers, so many different stipulations on each, that's part of how you have people falling through the cracks. Uh, you know, different structures of cost sharing in each one that people aren't necessarily aware of, uh, different premiums, which lead to different deductibles. And all of that uh, takes a ton of administrators, um, huge administrative bloat. Uh, there's not really any single insurance plan that has enough weight to negotiate prices down with providers. So I think that that system is also why you get rising prices, rising prices. And the best versions of Medicare for All uh, basically evolve beyond a fee-for-service plan. So, you know, right now, Medicare pays uh, a given fee for each service that you can get in a hospital. If you go and get 
you know, uh, elbow surgery, then that's built. It's probably coded as a few different things, but, you know, that there are Medicare rates for those things that's then built to Medicare. Um, the best Medicare for all plan in the house basically just gives each hospital a global budget to work with. Uh, and so that single lump sum budget can really only be done with a Medicare for all plan as opposed to a public option. Wow, that so a bit of a, a bit of a wonky answer. Yeah. No, I love that. That's that's why we're here. Also, I I cannot wait to one day get elbow surgery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know why that was like the Hell first yeah. thing that popped into my head. There's never been anything wrong with my elbow, so it's not like that was like you know at the tip of my tongue. Not yet. <laughs> that's not what I've heard. I've heard I've heard a lot of people saying bad things about your elbows, and I, uh, oh, I just didn't know how to bring it up. Okay, well, Natalie sure has really shitty elbows. <laughs> as long as, as, long as the audience knows, man, how awkward. But yeah, I think ultimately maybe the simpler answer is that. Uh, you know, choice and variety from one insurance plan to another is a really bad thing. People have different healthcare yeah. needs. Uh, they don't have a different need for the ability to access the healthcare they need. You know, um, totally. Yeah. So, and I think I think it's so I think it's so interesting for all the reasons that you've outlined that for whatever reason the public option is polling better than. Medicare for all. And I think that that just comes down to the fact that people don't really understand the difference between the two of them or yes. why Medicare for all is better. So my question to you is like, what do you think the biggest misconception or misunderstanding is uh, held by most Americans about Medicare for all that's really holding it back from uh, being wi more widely supported? Yeah. Um, so I think that both, both of those questions are related in so far as, you know, I think that the reason that public option right now pulls better than Medicare for all single payer uh, is that I think intuitively the idea of, well, how about anyone who wants to can have the Medicare plan and anyone who doesn't can keep what they have. And I think, yeah, intuitively that sounds decent. Uh, and so I think connected to that, the uh, big misconception, I would say, is the idea that people generally like the insurance plans that they have. Um, and certainly, you know, Gallup polls and Kaiser polls, I believe, uh, show a majority of people saying that they are either satisfied with their coverage or think that they have good to excellent coverage. Uh, but I think that a bit too much is extrapolated from that. I mean, first of all, I think that, you know, the majority of non-elderly people uh, don't use healthcare too much, uh, the majority of healthy mm -hmm. people, especially. So, you know, if you have an employer-based plan, chances are uh, you are someone who d doesn't have disproportionately high healthcare needs, uh, who probably hasn't had to go through the ringer wrangling with your insurer and realizing that you have to pay these massive deductibles, massive out-of-network bills. Uh, so it's a, you know, people who say that they like their insurance mostly are a population that disproportionately hasn't used it much. Uh, and I mm -hmm. also think that, you know, I think that our system is so screwed up that anyone who has anything probably has this feeling of being fortunate because they have a friend or a relative or they've heard stories about people who have gone bankrupt, people who have had terrible experiences, and they're just relieved to have anything. Um, so I think that there's a lot going into those answers that... Uh, aren't really interrogate, interrogated uh, before people just, you know, look at the polling and say, oh, well, people like their healthcare plans. So, you know, this idea that there will be this groundswell of opposition, people begging you not to take away, you know, my Cigna plan with a $2,000 deductible that I get from work, I just don't see that happening. I totally agree. And I also think that a lot of people conflate um, liking their healthcare plan with liking their doctors. A lot of people like their doctors exactly. and um, that's, you know, they're afraid of not being able to see their same doctors, um, especially people who are um, a little bit older. They get very, you know, we all get attached to to our doctors in, in some way if they're good. I don't. I'm okay. a normal person and I have friends. Well, <laughs> okay, well, I obviously don't. And my doctors <laughs> rock. Uh, <laughs> Julia's just hanging out with her doctor. Hanging okay. out with my doctors. Uh, they're very cool. Um, they know so much about me. Um, yeah, I mean, the way that this is, the Medicare for All is reported on is so, especially by the, the uh, right-wing outlets, is just so intentionally misleading. Um, the National Interest had this 
uh, had this headline today said that said new Medicare for all bill would kick 181 million people off of private insurance. <laughs> oh my God. That's so deceptive. It's yeah. just like, it's like, yeah. Why do you think it would quote kick them off? Because they would be covered by. <laughs> yeah. It'll, <laughs> like, it'll replace 181 plan. insurance plans with something better and more seamless. That's then given to everyone. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> it's definitely We're, a fucked up framing. I mean, yeah. But Joe Biden's running with it too. He fucking loves that line. Yeah, um, I saw that Biden ad and it's like uh if for our listeners who haven't seen this, it's um Joe Biden with an older woman talking about how her union had negotiated uh good insurance that would last for the rest of her life and she didn't want to have to lose that insurance and Joe Biden steps in as this heroic figure like, Don't worry, little lady, I'll protect your insurance. <laughs> yeah, I mean I've I've written about uh the the unions and single payer issue for in these times, actually. And it is really difficult. You know, on one hand, you'd think that organized labor should be a constituency that should be massively behind Medicare for all. You know, I mean, every massive labor issue over the past few years that's been in the news, it's all boiled down to or largely boiled down to healthcare benefits and fighting to keep what they already have. Uh, so, you know, there are some unit uh, unions that are really big behind single payer, National Nurses Union being the biggest one. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, a lot of them, I do think that there's this attitude that they fought so hard to keep what they have. They've spent so much, you know, blood, sweat and tears getting those plans and that, you know, union plans, well bargained ones are often better than their private sector corollaries. And or I mean, usually public sector, there are private unions with good plans, too. But, uh, you know, the, the idea that they fought hard to get these things and want to keep them like that's. I think very politically misguided. Uh, it is, it is something that exists, and I think that that's um, you know an unfortunate thing about human nature. I don't want to single unions out, but right. yeah, you know, I think that some of the people with the best plans do have this um, you know attitude that they want to cling to those, and we're going to have to deal with that somehow. But yeah, acting as if you know Joe Biden is validating that tendency and that he's going to rescue that woman and save her against this big bad medicare for all is very silly yeah and also i'm so i'm in a union myself and well um, cool brag thank you so much um and yeah and i you know i've met a lot of the leadership of of my union and they do they fight tooth and nail for us and like old Mm-hmm. You, like older union people are truly some of the most like hardcore people I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and they're, yeah. but I mean, imagine this is, this is one of those instances in which I feel that if, if people zoomed out a little bit, um, like organized labor should and would get behind this. And I think like, you know, it's kind of like how AFL CIO came out against the green new deal. Um, but mm-hmm. I think I, I just think about how much, uh, how much time would be freed up for unions if they didn't have to bargain healthcare and how many other aspects yeah. of our contracts they could spend time fighting on because healthcare is usually the biggest chunk of the pie that they spend their time uh, fighting the the management on. Exactly. Yeah. They could fight for higher wages instead of healthcare benefits. Totally. At the same time, I feel like the great majority of opposition to Medicare for all is not coming from unions. No, not I at feel all. like most of it's yeah, yeah. Oh no, of course. Yeah, not. I mean nobody no. was saying that. I just wanted to. We love unions. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> don't cancel us. We love unions. Yeah. So uh, one thing that I've been thinking about in this discussion um, is I've been thinking about my own family. I think part of the reason I'm passionate about this topic is because um when I was growing up, my brother had a really rare illness that involved a lot of experimental, quote, experimental surgeries, which really meant like things that Mm -hmm. he desperately medically needed to keep him alive, but also that insurance companies found a way to weasel out of covering. Mm -hmm. And so my my family um, went bankrupt from medical bills because um, like even though we had insurance, it just wouldn't cover a lot of his treatment or the copays were so high. You know, he'd have like a many hundreds of thousands of dollars surgery and their copays would be like, I don't know, um, 
$20,000 or something like really, really, really high. And this went on over like years and years and my family accumulated a ton of debt trying to keep their son alive. And I don't think that a lot of people who haven't been through that experience know what it's like to be in a situation where you or your child needs life-saving medical care and you're like thinking about how you're going to pay for it or mm. if you have to lose your home over that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and talk about a situation that is, you know, stressful and heartbreaking without that, yeah. right? Like even Absolutely. under single payer, that would be an incredibly painful, difficult experience that you're just fighting every day. I mean, you know, just uh, sitting on the phone alone, wrangling with, you know, insurers and paperwork is heartbreaking, not to mention the actual financial impact. So, you know, totally a lot of a lot of suffering stands to be reduced with a plan like this. Absolutely. Yeah. So actually, um, my brother has had type one diabetes since he was five. And my dad had like through our family through my dad's union insurance had like, was very lucky. Um, but I've seen the cost of my brother's insulin just absolutely skyrocket mm -hmm. over the past, um, you know, 10, 15 years. And he, um, there was a time when he was kind of in between jobs and he had to like make a calculus about how he was going to get his insulin. And I've read so many horror stories from other diabetics of people like rationing their insulin. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's like, especially for type one, your body makes no insulin whatsoever. So yeah. you, like, if you, if you don't have it, you'll die. Um, and yeah, it just, it just confuses me how there could be such a strong opposition to this. And I, so I guess that leads into my next question, which is, um, you know, you've, you've written extensively on Medicare for all for a lot of different publications. And so I just wanted to know, like, what is the most surprising thing that you've learned about it over the course of your years of research? Uh, yeah. So I think that, and there are a few things, um, not just about Medicare for all, but about, you know, reasons that we need Medicare for all uh, about the healthcare system in general. And I think that one thing that's been um, really instructive for me recently that I'm still, you know, wrapping my head around, I'm not an expert on it yet, but it's the degree to which uh, the financial sector has really propagated a lot of this. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, for example, with the insulin cost crisis specifically, uh, I think that one reason that uh, drug prices have skyrocketed in recent years, uh, and there are many reasons, but one is uh, the fact that, you know, in the 1970s, 1980s, when you have the rise of, uh, you know, some of this, um, like, DNA-based breakthroughs, and so, you know, new technologies have led to uh, different drug innovations over the years. There's been a lot of uh, investment in that sector, which, you know, obviously when you have uh, investors, you have to um, uh, pay them back. You have to pay back shareholders and that these uh, investors pay in with a uh, promise of unmitigated growth and that that sort of uh, influences the fact that drug prices have to keep climbing structurally to maintain everything. Mm -hmm. uh, you also have, you know, when hospitals build giant, shiny new orthopedic swings, for example, uh, they get that money from somewhere, right? Like they have to get a big loan that they then have to pay back, which means that they have to raise prices over and over. And that's not to say that the financial sector is the sole reason that prices are going up. But I think it helps me kind of understand structurally why prices do keep rising the way that they do. Uh, and why, um, you know, people people say like, oh, it's because of greed. And ultimately it is, right? Um, I mean, you know, all of these things, you can make a case that they are, uh, you know, inherently greed-based. But I think that understanding them structurally, understanding the degree to which we've, you know, created a system wherein things do have to go up and up and up. And, you know, it's not just bankers who have bought into the system. It's, you know, pension plans. It's, uh, yeah. you know, stockholders who, um, you know, aren't aren't necessarily <laughs> bigwigs at a company who have, you know, so it's, it's just this structure that we really have to figure out how to untie. And I don't have an answer for how to do that, but it's definitely another facet 
uh, of this story that I think is important to think about? I think with people like my parents, one fear that they have about something um, that would change their current situation, like I think that they had the experience with private insurance of being denied care so many times uh-huh. that they worry that perhaps the government would also do that. Like perhaps if, you know, there was Medicare for all and they were covered through it, that like they would still be in this situation where maybe they would be even less likely to get the care that they needed. And like, so I don't know, what would you say to people who are afraid that like, if we had Medicare for all, that the government would like screw it up in some way that would actually leave people with worse health outcomes? Um, I, I mean, I think that, you know, first of all, if you look at other countries that do have universal programs with more government oversight, um, they have better health outcomes uh, yeah, than the United absolutely. States overall. So I think that that's important. And, um, you know, I, I guess that I would say, uh, so, you know, in, in something like the UK, uh, they have the NHS and they also have a public board whose job it is to ultimately, you know, decide what's covered and what's not and deal with appeals processes and do so in a transparent way. Um, and, you know, there are times when people get upset with that board. Uh, you know, there have been news stories in the UK about, you know, this this person not getting a certain experimental drug and being very upset about it. And I think that those situations are difficult. Uh, but I ultimately think that, it, like, there will always be experimental drugs, some of which have um, outcomes that are in dispute. Um, you know, there are some there are some really sure bets and there are some not sure bets. And that I think personally, I would want uh, a public accountable body making those decisions uh, as opposed to a private company in all situations. I think that, you know, they're yeah. always they're always difficult, but I would choose the one that's publicly and democratically accountable, who's, you know, at least making these in accordance with. Uh, public standards, um, things like that. That is a really difficult situation and we'd have to think a lot about it and it would have to be, you know, something that people are very careful about building. But yeah, I'd I'd rather have uh, a public entity doing that than a private company, uh, a private for-profit company any day of the week. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so what I'm just going to tell my parents then is mom and dad, uh, there will be death panels but <laughs> they will be nicer than the private insurance death panels and it, it, like a democratically yeah. accountable death panel exactly <laughs> that's what we want yeah. that's the future that liberals want yes uh, <laughs> um you know we've talked we've talked about some of the the bad arguments uh made against against medicare for all what's the worst argument that you consistently hear in opposition to medicare for all um I mean, besides the fact that people are in love with their private health insurance, yeah, uh, I think, you know, people argue against Medicare for all and say, well, you know, there will be a ton of industry opposition. And that's I mean, that's absolutely <laughs> true. Of course, there will be from a lot of, you know, there will be a lot of industry opposition. Um, but those are people who say, you know, we we can't have Medicare for all because there will be too much industry opposition. So how about we do, uh, you know, a robust public option and all payer rate setting? Or how about we do, you know, Medicare Extra, this plan that's been designed recently by the Center for American Progress? And the industry will fight back very hard against those things, too. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, I I guess I, I, I I'm skeptical that there's some like variance in the degree of opposition that the private sector uh, in the healthcare industry will somehow be fine with something that, uh, you know, significantly changes their business model versus that completely changes their business model. Um, so I think that we right. have to gear up for that kind of thing either way. And it feels like a disingenuous argument against single payer specifically. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's so many parts of of our life, our lives in America that we, that we are so many American institutions that we already sort of take for granted that if they were just being created today would be heavily opposed by, uh, the private sector, yeah. um, like universal, uh, K through 12 public education yeah. libraries and 
Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I'm still against libraries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, girls girls yeah. should not be There's educated. There's nerds in there. <laughs> Go watch like a movie, them. dweebs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Social Security is another huge one yeah. that, uh, you know, Republicans keep trying to abolish, but... Uh, and, and, you know, I think you know. an important thing to recognize, you know, Social Security is a great thing to bring up because, you know, now like social, I mean, Republicans have talked about privatizing and some Democrats have talked about privatizing it or scaling it back for a long time. Uh, Same with Medicare, but that's really hard to do because they've got this mass constituency because you can't come for Medicare or social security without just, you know, being uh, knocked back completely by a groundswell of, uh, politics in your face. Um, totally. And I think, I think we saw that, uh, with the, the numerous times that they have tried to repeal the affordable care yeah. act. Um, that once people have something, it is extremely difficult, difficult to take it away from them. Exactly. Um, and so I think that that's, yeah, I mean, and when you, you know, we recently did a, we did a full episode on, on Nancy Pelosi and we talked a lot about, uh, the ACA fight and, I mean, this is something that was not polling well at all uh, the summer before it it went to a vote. And now it's polling so well that it has that repeals have repeatedly failed. Yeah. And, you know, the most popular part of and rightfully so the most popular part of the ACA and the thing that really made the difference when they were trying to repeal it is medic the Medicaid expansion, that that's what benefited the most people. Um, That's what has the broadest constituency. And that's what had the most people fighting for it. Uh, And I think that single payer is the same way. Like, it's one thing you can chip away at a lot of aspects of the Affordable Care Act. And obviously, Republicans are dead set on doing that. Uh, But it's just a lot harder to come for mass universal programs. And so that's, you know, a political strategy as well as a tactical one. Yeah. And I, you know, we, we brought up Joe Biden a few times and he friend of the show sucks. <laughs> He's a yeah, friend of the sh- friend of the podcast, uh, Joe Biden, um, our terrible uncle. And he has said repeatedly that he would absolutely take a swing at Social Security and Medicare. And it's just like mm-hmm. he said that that was the part of Paul Ryan's ideology that he didn't disagree <laughs> with. And I was like, the part of Paul Ryan that I don't disagree <laughs> with is P90X. <laughs> Yeah. Um, um, no, but Joe Biden sucks. Finish your question. Su- oh, no, he, su- he sucks so much. I didn't have any question. I just want to say that Joe Biden yeah, sucks. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he was like, you know, definitely in the anti-ACA camp initially. He was advising Obama not to even go for it with health care, that it was going to be too yeah, thorny. Him he should and- do something else. Him and Rahm Emanuel. Um, <laughs> Rahm Emanuel, yeah, once again, uh, another, another friend of the pod. But uh, he says bad words, and that's cool. <laughs> um uh yeah but yeah they they both wanted or rom specifically wanted uh wanted aca to be abandoned and wanted them to like push through a jobs bill instead um yeah so like to to obama's eternal credit i have a lot of problems with the guy but yeah i mean that was the thing that was worth fighting for at that time the uh, the aca fell short in a lot of ways obviously but totally it was a you know a marked improvement over the nothing that was there before it and you know, um, I I do think if if we ever do get Medicare for all or, you know, whatever, whatever better healthcare system we somehow knock on wood end up with in the future, uh, I think that ACA will have been an important stepping stone. Uh, yeah, it was the first time I got health insurance in many years because I've been a freelancer for most of the past, I don't know, long time. And ACA, like, was... I was able to sign up for a plan through yeah. uh, the website. I mean, I I don't have health insurance anymore because right now, like the cost of it is so high that I just uh, I roll the dice, which um, <laughs> yeah, you know, which is not good. But it's like I I mean, it would be like such a such a high percentage of my income to buy like the worst insurance ever that yeah. I do what a lot of healthy people do, and I take my chances, and that's fine because it's like if I have a ear infection, I just go pay cash to go to the doctor and that's way less than I would pay for insurance but the thing is is like if something really bad happens then you're totally screwed and I think that we've all seen that like 
yeah. in the comedy community. We've all seen our friends have to do GoFundMes for their surgeries. Yeah. And um, yeah, this like crowdfunding trend, I think, is one of the best cases for why we need Medicare yeah, for all. It's like I, yeah. anyone who opposes Medicare for all, I'm like, oh, you just think that healthcare by GoFundMe is a better solution. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, and it's perfectly rational to, you know, if you're paying a couple hundred dollars in premiums a month for a plan with a $5,000 deductible, I mean, of course, it's the more rational or reasonable choice to decide to pay out of, I mean, you'll be paying out of pocket for thousands and thousands of dollars anyway. Um, so yeah, saving the premiums, I mean, is a choice that millions of people make. I mean, also, it's not a couple hundred. For me, as a person in my 30s in New York, it would be $450 a month wow. to have health insurance, like the worst health insurance. Yeah. 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 Uh, a lot of listeners of our podcast, we think. We hope. We hope <laughs> care about feminism. And I was wondering uh, why you've described this as a feminist issue. Yeah. Um so I guess this is, you know, another another eye-opening framework that I've developed over the past few years. Um, you know, obviously women, uh at least non-elderly women, uh use more healthcare than men. We have higher out-of-pocket costs because of all the baby stuff. Um whether or not you're actively having babies, you have a that re- fucking a, baby cis, stuff. Cis women specifically have um yeah. uh a lot of healthcare needs that men don't. And so I think that uh Women who aren't sick use healthcare services, uh, and men who aren't sick don't tend to. So mm. I think that one of the reasons that this debate can be stilted and the discussion about healthcare can be stilted is that uh, men don't tend to use a lot of healthcare until they're already on Medicare. Um, wow. And so, you know, disproportionately, the healthcare that they use is when they already are covered with this great government plan. Uh, And so, you know, uh, private based health coverage with cost sharing is, I think, inherently sexist because women are disproportionately the ones who are using it. Um, There's a ton of cost sharing uh, for most private plans, whether or not you have a fantastic one. Most people at least have, you know, deductibles, co-pays. And if you're having um, a significant healthcare episode like childbirth, uh, chances are you have you know, a team of doctors, a team of different things that they're billing for. Um, not necessarily everything will be out of network. And so, you know, you'll be paying out of pocket uh, for childbirth. Uh, and that's, you know, I mean, often often women give birth with uh, partners. Often they don't. Who knows? But they're still paying more for health care before they reach the age of 65. Uh, besides that, they're often um, insured as dependents. Uh, and so they get their coverage through their relationship, which obviously presents a lot of problems. People talk about job lock a lot when it comes to health insurance, this idea that our healthcare system locks people into jobs they don't necessarily want to have and makes it harder to switch jobs because of the health insurance issue. Uh, they don't talk about its corollary, which is, I mean, relationship lock. There's no data on this, but uh, I mean, it seems intuitive, you know, one one reason that people don't leave relationships that they don't want to be in or, you know, abusive relationships is often economic, uh, one among many reasons. And so this is a huge part of that. Um, you know, there are a ton of reasons that Medicare for all is a specifically feminist issue. Uh, women are disproportionately poor, um, you know, maternal maternal mortality rates in uh, poor communities of color are really high. And all of these things could be better addressed through uh, a robust public financing system. Yeah, one thing I think that we've been talking about on the pod lately, and I've been thinking a lot about in general, is like also expanding the definition of feminism and that it it isn't always necessarily like just things that affect women. Like the fact that so many people are not able to go to the doctor, it is like that's real inequality and it's, it's really messed up. And I think that like as feminists, we can care about that, even though many of the people affected by that are not women. Well, it's like, yeah, it's, it's also like the, you know, reproductive rights fight, obviously that, affects so many more people than just cis women. Um, Yeah. 
Um, so to get us out of the like imaginary hopeful zone that it's really fun <laughs> to be in sometimes in this hellscape that uh, we are living in right now, um, what would the path to making Medicare for all a reality look like? Uh, I mean, unfortunately, that's like the hardest question, right? Yeah. Um, Solve this right now okay, for us. No, Natalie. luckily I have yeah. the exact answer. So write it down. No. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate that. Uh, Thank um, you so much. Yeah, just, you know, it'll be a 30 second soundbite and we'll fix it. Uh, <laughs> Death panels. So obviously, I don't. And so the bad news um, is that there has never before in human history been such a massively entrenched profit-driven healthcare industry. Um, it's unprecedented. And so there's also never been uh, a transition of a healthcare industry of this scope. Like, like what we're trying to do with the healthcare financing and how we're trying to get it to remake the healthcare system overall, uh, that kind of transition hasn't been accomplished in any state in history. Um, so that's, you know, difficult. We're up against a lot. Uh, that said, I think that the um, moments in time when we have seen massive change in American history have all been ascribable to mass movements, right? So like the reason that we got Medicare in the great society and civil rights advancements in the 1960s. Uh, those were all because there were mass movements. There were people in the streets. Uh, there was, you know, social disorder that forced the hands of politicians. And you see that with the labor movement. You see that with, um, you know, the movement to uh, liberate slaves. Uh, you see slave organizing, that kind of thing. Uh, and so I think that that's that's our only option. Um, transformative political change in a U.S. context, at least uh, where we'd be doing this. Um, it's always due to a mass movement uh, as opposed to, you know, simply voting for the least bad thing. Uh, and so that's what this is going to require. What exactly that looks like can be a really hard question. Um, I mean, I think, I don't know if you guys have ever gone canvassing for like the New York Health Act in New York. I certainly did a lot of canvassing and rallies and stuff for the California bill uh, around two years ago when it was up in the House or in the California Assembly. Um, I think that kind of thing can start to build power or making, making inroads with other movements, with, you know, labor movements, with ecological movements. Um, there was recently a lot of direct action, a lot of protests at this hospital called Hanneman Hospital. That's, you know, this poor hospital in Philadelphia that serves communities of color uh, primarily is closing down for, uh, you know, it's not profitable and it's owned by this conglomerate. Uh, and so there were a lot of protests about that. Um, I mean, it's going to take a heck of a lot of things like that. It's going to take, you know, reaching across to other movements and, you know, I don't I don't know what the path to it looks like exactly, but I know that that's a non-negotiable ingredient. Yeah. Um, in terms of the 2020 presidential race, um, Bernie Sanders, I think, is the only candidate that is like 100 percent for Medicare for all. Yeah. Is that still the case? I know that some other people have like kind of nodded it like, oh, yeah, maybe we could get rid of private insurance. But I, I think he's the only one that's been really willing to commit to it 100% at this stage, right? Yes. He's the only one that is, you know, 100% all in making it his political issue and will proactively and single-handedly push for it. I think that the other candidates have... Um, you know, in in various ways at various times indicated uh, a relative support, a willingness to support it. But, you know, w Bernie Sanders is willing to fight for it and try to drive public opinion, whereas the other answers I see as more willing to bow to public opinion. Um, so, you know, I think that like like Elizabeth Warren won't veto Medicare for all, but she's not going to she's not going to get it to go over the goalpost and whatever mechanism that happens. Um, well, she she like a, like a few of the other 2020 candidates, she is a, a co-sponsor of Bernie's bill. And she is one of the one of the people who in the debates raised her hand and said that she would 
get rid of private health insurance. Yeah, so she's she's the best on it besides Sanders, I think. Um, you know, she's she's wavered and, you know, had some uh stipulations associated with that depending on context. But yeah, I think the best way to think of it is like ultimately she'll be if the if the movement brings the entire United States and like builds a consensus and puts it on her desk, she'll go for it. Or maybe, you know, maybe even a little before that. But like she's not going to like center her political fight on that question in particular, whereas Sanders does. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, Natalie, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Um, we have one last question for you. Yeah. Uh, this podcast is called Reply Guys. Have you had an experience at all recently on Twitter with uh, a Reply Guy that you would like to spotlight? <laughs> <laughs> um. I I have I have one reply guy who like sometimes I think he's criticizing like every time I post a picture of my dog he like criticizes like oh his harness is too tight or like oh he shouldn't <laughs> he shouldn't be outside today it's too hot things like I don't like it's sometimes a little like insult I'm like I I'm I'm taking care of my dog don't like do, I'm not just leaving him in the sun he's fine like he's just the, the it's kind of like rolling it just looks tight in this picture because he's rolling on his belly like he's chill out um, so sometimes I'm like like he's like weirdly neggy and I'm like is he mad at me but then like you know sometimes donut libs on Twitter like who hate me in many cases they'll post something shitty about me and then this same reply guy will like jump to my defense all the time wow so, i don't know Look, it's, he, it's complicated he just wants your dog <laughs> and you to be okay yeah, he, like, he like wants to to neg my dog parenting into like us being friends i don't know it's um it's really complicated i don't know where that leaves us but you know oh, re- reply guys are a mystery to us all <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right natalie thank you so much Thanks for so coming much. on the show you guys i appreciate it Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, which is O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can also find our Reply Guys. They are always with us. Bernie? Take us out. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land.